0: Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church Podcast with Senior Pastor Matt Homeyer. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, visit our website at trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for the breakfast in our lungs and the, excuse me, the breath in our lungs, the breakfast in our bellies, for humor and laughter, God, and many gifts that you give us. We each have joys and needs and burdens and wishes on our hearts and minds and souls that we bring before you now knowing you are trustworthy, the only truly trustworthy thing that can handle all that we have. Let us entrust you now, God, and speak to us as we have need. In your name we pray. Amen. We're continuing today uh, our series, God can where we're looking at between Easter and Pentecost, between resurrection and Pentecost, stories in Scripture of what God can do and filling our imagination, filling our minds, filling our hearts with these stories of what God can do when God moves in the world. Again, not... As you might have seen, a video we sent out this week, not as just a thought exercise, but as a something real and lived that we would live within awareness every day of what is possible when God is on the move in and through our world. We're in the book of Acts today, in Acts 12, and the book of Acts is just chock full of stories of what God can do and of God being on the move in any number of ways. And in fact, this is a little preview. This summer, beginning with Pentecost in three weeks, we're gonna be walking through Acts and tracing a journey of the Spirit's work and movement through Acts through much of our summer. So we're gonna hear a lot of Acts this summer, but this is a different a different sermon. It's a similar, but a little bit different. You may not have heard a sermon on persistence before. Debbie, very helpfully, uh, Define that for us so we all know what persistence is. You might have heard, heard sermons similarly on other attributes of God, but God is a persistent God. It's the word I like to describe this, and perhaps it is a, an attribute of God, a quality of God that we undervalue and don't talk about enough. I mean, we rely on God's persistence, his continuance, his consistency. We could go on with similar words, synonyms, on and on and on. We rely on it every day of our life. When we continue to sin, when we turn from God in big ways and small ways, God's persistence to forgive us, persistence to love us is always there, whether we realize it or not. When darkness seems to be winning in the world, when when there are things wrong with the world, and, and we're not sure if they will ever change or ever get better, God is there persistently working persistently giving light so that light might shine brightly in the world. And and because we are Christians, little Christs, we are little Christs, we have a call on our life to be persistent as well, to act in faithfully persistent ways in our lives. Uh, Persistence in prayer, persistence in faithfulness, persistence in fidelity. At times, our persistence, at times, y'all, this is really the lesson of the sermon. You're going to get now, you're going to get it again. So it's two for one day. Our persistence is the small but necessary link in a longer chain of God's faithfulness. That sometimes our persistence, our faithfulness, even in very seemingly small things, is the link in the chain that brings together something much bigger and much grander that God is doing and he's asking our persistence to be a part of that. Our text today showcases this persistence of God and his followers. Again, we're in Acts 12. I'm not gonna read it, but we're gonna walk through really verse by verse pretty much the story. If you want it in front of you to make sure I get it right, please tell me if I don't. Chapter 11 in Acts, we're kind of at a midpoint of Acts. So we're at this point of Acts where uh, the story of Peter and the Jerusalem church and kind of the beginning of Acts and, and this church movement is beginning to transition to this story of a wider Gentile movement, a, a largely, no, not exclusively non-Jewish movement, not just in Jerusalem, but it's fanned out all over the empire at this point. And, and, and Paul and Paul's kind of followers and around Paul take center stage in the latter half of Acts and Peter kind of in his group kind of takes uh, stage more In the front, in Acts 11, we're kind of seeing some of this transition. Acts 11 ends on a pretty high note. Early in the chapter, Peter and Cornelius, God works through Peter through dreams and visions. To, for salvation in the, the life of Cornelius, this Roman centurion, his whole household is saved. And in Peter, to realize that this work of God in and through Jesus is so much more than just for Jerusalem or just for the Jewish people. It's for the world. It's even for Roman centurions, my goodness. And so the whole thing expands. And, and then the Uh, The church has been scattered all over because of persecution, and it's taken root in Antioch. And this church in Antioch that was largely Jewish at first is now having all these non-Jewish people, Gentiles is the word used for that, joining the church. And all of a sudden, this new, fast-growing, multi-ethnic, diverse church in Antioch, freely takes up an offering to support the mother church back in Jerusalem because Judea is facing a huge famine. And so we're seeing the growth and the maturation of these different churches connect together. It's a beautiful thing. It's a high note. As Acts 11 ends, the church is on the move and it's growing and expanding and new people are coming to the fold. And then we turn to chapter 12 and we see an abrupt shift. And it's there in the first verse, King Herod laid violent hands on the church. Boy, isn't that clear language? King Herod, back in Jerusalem, laid violent hands on the church. So one of the confusing things about the New Testament, there's a lot of the same names. There's a lot of Marys, we're going to see in this passages. There's a lot of Johns, there's several Jameses. There's just a few names here that get a little confusing So James, not James, the brother of Jesus, who became the head of the Jerusalem church, but James, the brother of John, James, the apostle, is killed by Herod. This is where those violent hands come into play. And in this kind of awful phrase, Herod saw that it pleased the Jewish leaders. So he thought, well, let's do it again. So he imprisoned Peter. And the intent seems to be that Peter is going to be killed as well the morning after the Passover feast. And so Peter isn't taken in prison. Four squads of guards are used. Why that many? We don't know. Peter had escaped from prison back in Acts 5. So maybe that figures into this. They're going to make sure he doesn't happen again. Hold on. Spoiler alert. More's coming. And it's one of those moments that come up fairly regularly in the life of the church then and now when darkness kind of seems to be winning in this moment. I mean, if you're in the Jerusalem church, you're in famine and you're in need and the church is growing in these other places in these amazing ways. And here now King Herod raises his ugly head again. And one of the leaders, one of the original 12 leaders is killed and now, Your your spokesperson, your your rock, literally, is in prison and about to be killed. It's one of those moments where the church has a decision to make. How will we respond to this? What are the resources and the weapons and the tools at our disposal? Who are we as a church? the leadership of the church in shambles, Herod on a tear, able to do whatever he wants, Herod with all the power. The irony is that this is happening at, about, at Passover, which Passover uh, goes back to Moses. It was a, a feast of the people, one of the f- four feasts where they would remember, they would gather together and eat certain foods and remember that time God delivered the people from mirac- in miraculous ways from unlikely and impossible circumstances. And here they are on Passover of all days with Peter in prison, with James dead. And the weapon the early church chooses to fight, you know, they don't take cues from Peter in the garden and get better at swordplay. They don't create some Hollywood elaborate escape plan, you know, and draw it up and go bust Peter out. The weapon that they choose to fight this particular injustice is prayer. In many ways a seemingly impotent force in the face of Herod's legions. Yet verse 5 here in in chapter 12 says they gathered not just for prayer, but for earnest prayer. And that word is the same used, uh, same word used when, when Jesus prayed in the garden before crucifixion. This is sweating blood prayer. This is stay up all night prayer. This is throw yourself on the ground in desperation prayer. This is pleading at the foot of the cross for Jesus and the power of God and the Holy Spirit to intervene miraculously. They they see power in prayer. And there's a lot of kind of mini lessons in this passage. It's really kind of a difficult passage to preach for me because it's hard to know what what is the primary lesson. I think there's several of them. One of them is, if we're going to talk about weapons at our disposal, that's probably a bad illustration, metaphor or uh, resources would be better. Prayer is the primary resource at our disposal. And when God's people pray, there's just no telling what God may do through that. It's in prayer that we. We listen to God. It's in prayer that we tap in to what God may be doing in the world that's that we don't see or we don't know or may be beyond us. It's, it's prayer where our our souls are healed and, and our body sometimes calms down and, and we think. It's in prayer that we're called to action when God calls us to action. The first response of God's people to crisis, injustice, is prayer. Well, while the church fervently prays, it seems like Peter's getting a pretty good night's sleep. There's several little funny, ironic parts of this. And, and while the church is staying all night praying, in, in, we'll see in a minute, in Mary's house, Mary, uh, the, the mother of John, um, Peter's sleeping really good. They threw him into jail. They they had four squads of guards around him. They had the door locked. They had two different guards at different doors. They had two soldiers on either side of him. In fact, they, it says that he's chained next to two soldiers. Some of the commentators believe that it's likely it was a common practice for, for in this case, he might have actually been chained and chained to the two soldiers just to, you know, triple check that he's not going to escape. And Peter is sleeping really good. And at this point, God intervenes. The angel of the Lord comes down and shines a light on Peter, and Peter does not wake up. I think Peter in this passage must be a really, really deep sleeper. We can learn some things here. Have you ever had to wake up a teenager and you kind of have to, treat them like a robot for about 10 minutes before they really, you know, get out of bed, put on your clothes, brush your teeth, go to, you know, chew your food, walk into the kit. You kind of have to give them step-by-step directions until they wake up and are like fully human. This is what the angel of the Lord does for Peter. He he comes and the light shines down on Peter and he's sleeping really well. And so it's kind of like the angel gives him a little, Gentle, or maybe not so gentle, kicking the ribs. Get up, Peter. Peter, get up. Peter, put on your clothes. Peter, don't forget your cloak. It's cold out. Wrap yourself up, Peter. Peter, step over those two guards. It says at about this point, Peter doesn't know whether he's in a dream or whether this is actually happening. Is this a vision that I'm receiving, or is this actually happening? Again, back to the deep sleeper theory. Takes a little bit for Peter to get up. But God, the Spirit of God, this angel of the Lord, walks him step by step through this escape process. He passed the first guard and the second guard unseen and unheard. Before that, even the chains melted off and unlocked themselves without waking up the guards on either side. They come to the wrong side of a locked prison iron gate, and yet it swings open of its own accord. They walk out of the prison. The angel of the Lord disappears. Peter comes to himself about a block from the prison, from the jail there in Jerusalem, and realizes this has all happened. This is real real, and he hightails it to Mary's house. He knew where they would be. What a testimony, too, of the power of the church and the community of the church at this point. He seems to know, he seems to trust implicitly they would be waiting for him praying. Isn't that a wonderful thing? to trust your family of faith to that degree. When you are in trouble, when you are in crisis, you know at any time this is who you can go to and they will be praying, they will be ready to help and act on your behalf. It's a wonderful picture kind of in the midst of this. So Peter hightails it to Mary's house. Seemingly, Mary is a person of means. This is a nicer house, it seems like, than the typical House might have been. It likely would have been uh, a city block or in part of a city block with other houses, with perhaps an outer door, which is what we see Peter knocking on, and an inner courtyard with other rooms off of that courtyard. And so the people praying might have been in the back in another room with that door closed, a courtyard, and this front gate, this front door that Peter was, there's was any number of configurations, but that's one of them this could have been, and explain why no one heard Peter knocking. Peter Peter runs to Mary's house and knocks on the door. And there's this servant named Rhoda that comes to the door. Now, it seems to the rest of the story, Rhoda is a believer. She joins in the joy with the rest of the believers, but, but she is a servant, Mary's servant, presumably, in the house. And so she hears the voice of Peter and recognizes it but doesn't open the gate for some reason. And in her joy, she runs and bursts into the prayer meeting and says, you guys, you've been praying for this. You won't believe it. Peter is here. I don't know the story, but Peter is here knocking on the gate. It's a wonderful story. Acts is full of stories of the Spirit's miraculous movement But even in this book, this story stands out for the minute ways the Spirit of God, the the angel of the Lord works to deliver Peter. There's two other jailbreaks here in Acts 5 and Acts 16, and in those, it kind of just miraculously happens, but it's not step by step quite like this. It's a wonderful story. In spite of all those odds, of the power of Herod and the darkness that seemed to reign. Herod and all these powers thwarted by God and these praying people. An amazing story. Except for one small detail. The praying people don't believe Rhoda. Isn't that funny? Verse 15, they say to her, Rhoda, you're out of your mind. Rhoda, you are insane. Don't you know where Peter is, Rhoda? There's no getting out of that. That's why we're praying. Why would we be praying if people, Peter were here? There's no way Peter could be. Or maybe you saw his angel, which is, could have meant two things. One, that he actually died. They thought maybe he had been killed. But probably meant there was kind of a belief in like something like a guardian angel, that he might have had like a guardian angel with him, and maybe that's what Rhoda saw like in a vision or something. It's kind of unclear exactly what that means but Rhoda you're out of your mind. You're hearing things Rhoda. Rhoda you saw some vision Rhoda dear Rhoda just just go back. The praying people don't believe Rhoda. Can we stop here and name the absurdity for a minute? I mean the absurdity of this entire uh thing up to this. This is the church in Jerusalem y'all. It is pro- possible if not probable. Some of these folks saw crucifixion. Some of them were there. If so, it's also possible, if not probable, they were waiting in mourning when Jesus appeared before him in the risen form. It's likely some of the women at the tomb are in this room, and they knew what it was like to have a word from God and not be listened to. It's even more probable some in this room were there at Pentecost. They were waiting, and they heard that mighty rushing wind come in power, and they saw the tongues of fire, and they experienced the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. They have experienced some things, y'all, and yet here they are missing the point. Here they are praying again, praying for Peter to be delivered, praying fervently through the night. This is likely in the last watch. So this is likely getting to be about daybreak. They've been praying through the night. God has persisted in his word. He has answered their prayer. Peter is at the gate knocking and they won't believe the messenger. Somehow in their prayer, they've stopped listening for an answer even as it bangs on their door, even as it bursts in on them. There's some lesson for us in that. (laughs) And what it looks like to pray, what it also looks like to listen, how God so often uses the unlikeliest of people in the unlikeliest of ways to speak to us and through us. And so we must be flexible. We must be listening. We must be watching. We must be ready to receive a word from unlikely people in unlikely ways and unlikely sources. The miracle seems to hang in the balance. But Rhoda persisted. Rhoda herself is fascinating. This believer who is also a servant, she's not invited into the prayer gathering, or at least not at this point. She's out serving. She is... Mary's servant, Mary is her master, yet she is also a believer. What it took for Rhoda to be called crazy, <laughs> to be told she's hearing things, to be dismissed by her employer, and to persist in what she knew was right and faithful. Rhoda keeps insisting in the face of their blindness, in the face of their arguments, Rhoda kept kept insisting. Rhoda, the believer, finally she convinces them to at least come to the gate and see, at least come listen, and they do, and they hear Peter's voice, and they open the gate, and there's great joy by everyone and they're amazed and he told them how he was delivered and he told them to go tell, to spread the word, to tell everybody about this and then Peter wisely hightailed it out of town. Friends, we never know when our seemingly very small acts of faith, our small acts of obedience and persistence even in a small thing, when that will be the link in a long chain that reveals God's persistent work in the world. Sometimes God works in power in ways that we can't assist him in, like rescuing Peter from jail. Other times, there are little things he's calling us to, big things sometimes he's calling us to, sometimes in a moment, sometimes for a lifetime that he is counting on us, calling us, trusting us, privileging us to participate in the unfolding of his blessing, in the unfolding of his work. And every so often we participate in these chains of God's movement where our little peace becomes very important. Our faith calls us to live with daily trust that God is at work in the world. That God's work, God's activity, God's love persists and never stops persisting. And sometimes God's work in our lives and in our world is very obvious and clear. Those are wonderful days, wonderful seasons. And sometimes it is murky and it is hard to see, hard to feel. And that's more confusing. And then other times it feels like there's just silence. It feels like there's just darkness, and we struggle to see the light. And so often the work of God is on a different timeline from ours, this eternal timeline when we want very much tighter time frames. The work of faith is to believe that God persists when we can see Him and when we can't and to receive this call that we are called to persist as well. To persist in being who he is calling us and has called us to be. To persist in doing what God has called us to do in the world. To persist in the acts of faithfulness that are ours to do. We've talked about calling the last few weeks. Friends, how how have you been answering that and what God is calling you to do, who God is calling you to be? The call is to persist. Who are you praying for? Who are you hoping for that it feels like the timeline of God is so much longer than yours, and and you've been hoping for this, praying for this, waiting for this for some time, sometimes for so long? Persist. Hang in there. God is on the move. God is working. Friends, we are called to persist as well. In this great chain of God's faithfulness. We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Senior Pastor Matt Homeyer. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.